Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. This week, uh, everyone's eyes are on Belarus following the Sunday hijacking of the Ryanair flight by Belarus uh, state um, in order to arrest uh, Roman Protasevich, uh, one of the leading uh, journalist figures um, in the Belarusian opposition. Uh, Wojtek, can you uh, tell us a little more about the implications of that event and what's what's uh, to follow? Thanks, Marisha, and it's good to see you as a, as a host. Marisha Chupka, junior fellow at Visegrad Insight, is uh, behind the microphone. Not for the very first time, but for the very first time, we welcome her as a co-host. Uh, now with uh, Quincy Klut just being vaccinated and, uh, and we are waiting for him to, to recover from Uh, from a mild uh, repercussions. My name is Wojciech Przybylski. And, and yes, as, as we speak, it's 26th of May. Uh, we see planes turning around from the borders of Poland. We have, uh, we have heard the reports about Belavia planes, um, uh, which were commercial flights, uh, chartered flights, not being able to enter a French um, French airspace. Uh, and uh, this is immediate reaction. This is the immediate aftermath of the situation that you've described, following the decision of the European Council and following an urgent uh, call um, that was urged from the Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki, but not only himself, many others, on how to respond to the situation of state terrorism uh, by, by Mr. Lukashenko. The situation is much more grave than just uh, peculiar developments of, you know, the Uh, the situation in Belarus internally in, in the country. It, it is an international incident um, harming and potentially threatening international order. And it's a consequence, as we also learned from a discussion we hosted yesterday, and we will, uh, you will hear some of the uh, sound bites from the discussion in the lighter part of the episode. These are the consequences of negligence, of, of lack of containment policy, Um, from the countries, uh, from the democratic uh, uh, perspective, from the countries of, of the EU and NATO uh, on Lukashenko and allowing him to, to function in, in this uh, semi-twilight. I mean, on one side, we all know he has no future, but still he clinches the power and holds captive and, um, and, and he demands a ransom, uh, apparently, for for the captive uh, members of his own society. And how would you evaluate the so far uh, response of the international community uh, towards what happened in Belarus? Well, despite all the negative campaigning on social media, what we have heard is quite a clear voice from the EU. Uh, there is also a message of unity from the United States on how to respond to that crisis. Biden said he wants Europe's lead and he will follow and coordinate. That doesn't necessarily mean he will do exactly that. The United States will have an active part in this. But uh, it's also time for Europe to grow up to the challenge. It's the immediate neighborhood challenge. And the US is far from and very reluctant to... Um, to take problems of the uh, fight for democracy just on themselves. And uh, European partners need to step in. 
So in that respect, I think it's a positive development. What is a, a big question mark, and again, I'm referring to the debate we had with Jörg Forbdick and Serge Caritano. Um, the big question is uh, the meeting between uh, Russian and US leaders that was just announced to, to be held on 16th of June in Switzerland. So that meeting in the context of what's going on and in also in the context of support that Lukashenko is receiving, um, but also more importantly, some Russian um, nationals uh, apparently involved in the incident as we read from the reports, um, as the Russians, potentially Russian operatives were involved on board on the plane. That should put a big question mark on the on the visit, not to allow. Just like you don't negotiate with terrorists, you you shouldn't sponsor any activity or legitimize any acti activity of states that support it. Right. So this is a topic that we will definitely uh, continue to talk about. What else in uh, Central Europe this week? Probably one of the um, one of the topic one of the most important topics was the dispute over Turov. Last week, the top EU court uh, urged for the for the coal mine to stop its operations following um, a request by the Czech side, uh, which sparked uh, a little bit of a miscommunication uh, scandal between the leaders of Poland and uh, and uh, Czechia. So, oh. what happened there? You, you clearly um, you clearly express um, the emotions that many, especially of, of of the new generation, had looking at this theater of, well, I, I don't know what that was. Um, on one side, we have a decision, uh, unprecedented decision, especially in the context of the relations in the Central Europe um, by European Court of Justice when Czechia uh, backed up um, it's uh, its region's claim. One of the regions uh, has had claims against Poland's plans to continue operations of the, well, of the dirty business. Essentially, let's call it by, by the, the name. The coal mine in Turów is a dirty business. I mean, it's a mittent. Um, it's um, uh, it's using the most uh, polluting uh, type of coal um, that is used for. Uh, power uh, power production, and because Polish side on the national level uh, was not in not responsive to claim and could not settle a deal with Czech partners on the regional level, at the beginning of the year the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Czech Republic stepped in, and Czechia sued Poland uh, in front of the AJC. Now AJC before it uh, will uh, give a final verdict, uh, decided to uh, temporarily stop operations, just not, not to cause any more damage on by this coal mine. And and that was stunning for, uh, right. for the Polish public opinion. And I think it was also overlooked in many other European countries. I mean, you have a situation in which you have a verdict of a European court to stop operations of a coal mine and importantly power power plant because it cannot be uh, powered by any other source than this particular mine next to it um, which would be uh, of immediate consequence 
with uh, roughly three percentage of supply of the power to the to the Polish grid and immediate effect on uh, on the workplaces but I mean this is the situation this is not to say someone here in particular is to blame if anyone is to blame it's a negligence on on the Polish and uh, well potentially check side if if they didn't want to reach the agreement that needs to be still investigated it was off the radar a bit for a number of uh, months of course there are expert jur journalists focusing on this and based on their reporting we know that there were efforts and there were negotiations on the Polish side but the Czechs were not receiving they were not accepting uh, the the proposals and they demanded a little bit more to which Polish side was not responding was not agreeing so this escalation with the uh, effects uh, brought us to the European Council meeting also which I mean it was already the, the plane was hijacked the council was hijacked by Belarus topics and on the sidelines of this uh, meeting of the EU leaders there was a V4 uh, group meeting as usual in mm -hmm. Brussels when they were supposed to discuss common positions originally they were supposed to discuss Russia Brexit climate goals and from what we know is that this forum was used primarily by Mr. Morawiecki and Mr. Babish to talk and try to settle the, the conflict regarding Turów. Now, by midnight, I think we were reading news from Polish Prime Minister announcing a, a close deal and a promise of checks to withdraw. And a few hours later, we were listening to a conference by Mr. Andrzej Babish uh, that was... Uh, uh, actually uh, saying it's all rubbish it's not true the Czechs the Czechs are indeed talking with Poles but they're not withdrawing uh, from the European Court of Justice and they are not um, considering it's a closed deal it's uh, nothing is settled uh, yet at least yet so so this situation continues uh, and there are various voices once uh, on one saying that that means the Visegrad group is dead well far from true uh, that is that has nothing to do with the Visegrad group but bilateral relations but indeed it shows that there are tensions sometimes tensions you would not expect otherwise to to be present in so powerful and united bloc as the Polish and Hungarian propaganda often says and on the other hand um, yeah the V4 format was the format for mediating and facilitating the Polish-Czech conflict. So maybe V4 is actually working. It's just not working, uh, you know, as as many expect as the pan-European forum. It's an internal forum to, to manage disputes. If we are on the topic of Czechia, uh, we also heard that there's yet another change of the health minister. Uh, so now we have the fifth uh, health minister during the 10 months of the pandemic in Czechia. Uh, any comments on why so many of them? Well, the, the, whole, uh, the whole affair is, is also a little bit more... It, what we call it in Polish, um, it's, it's a phrasal expression. Uh, it's, a phrasal, um, yeah, it, it's called a Czech movie or Czech film. If someone says it's a Czech film, you, you have no idea what's going on inside and why things are happening. Um, well, this just <laughs> confirms a bit the, the case. Uh, during the pandemic, it's, it's not the fifth minister, to be precise. It's the, f 
it's it, in a, in a way it's the fourth minister he's and it's the same minister as the first minister so adam wojtech was the health minister until the moment he told prime minister babish that masks are recommended to be wore, to be put on in shops you know and in closed spaces uh, just before uh, check um, Czechs uh, experience uh, a deadly wave of the, the recent deadly wave of the of the pandemic, to which Prime Minister responded that he is not taking advice from someone who is so unprepared to manage a crisis. Um, Adam Wojciech resigned. There were one, two, three. Yes, there were four other ministers, if I'm counting them correctly. And the very recent one was resigning because of some scandal regarding his property that he forgot to declare. I mean, the you know, the well, oops, uh, a little bit of an issue of transparency. Well, at, at least the guy had lots of decency to, to do so, but maybe he was fed up with the job and nobody else wanted to take it. But again, Adam Wojtek and Adam Wojtek is back. We're back to the future or whatever we are. <laughs> We are in this uh, Czech movie of mismanaging the health crisis. Definitely, Adam Wojciech is is going maybe now to to try to to settle things. And of course, the most important thing is that people get vaccinated in Czechia, and um, uh, the rates of uh, multiplications and and uh, the number of of people who who suffer and eventually. Uh, die is 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 decreasing. It's uh, you know it's, it's limited to a minimum. And if we're uh, on the topic of vaccination, the news is that Slovakia uh, has just become the second EU country after Hungary to um, to confirm. Um, the Sputnik vaccine? Yeah, yeah, and that's also stunning news because it had political implications. The government almost uh, fell apart. The coalition government fell apart. The prime minister had to replace, um, to, to change places with a minister of, um, uh, in his cabinet. Uh, just just because partners would were fed up with his uh, micromanaging and surprise decisions, including the one to to bring Sputnik V to the table. And now Minister of Health, Mi Mr. Uh, Lengvarsky, um, also a military guy, um, he announced that I mean he voted within the uh, within the government uh, for accepting a Sputnik V at the beginning of June. I think it's six or seventh of June when. It is scheduled for release uh, to the public, but at the same time, as Denikan reports, um, he 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 answered uh, to the questions by journalists that he would not take it himself, and he would not recommend it to to the loved ones. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's a, a great thing to say for the health minister, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the, in the meantime, I, I think this, uh, I mean, we're always uh, having focus on Hungary this time. I, I have no particular news, although Hungarian followers or Orban anti-followers will, will never forgive us, I'm, I'm sure, for, for not mentioning Hungary. But, but uh, let it be. I mean, uh, we will definitely focus on it on the, in another episode. Uh, but for now... Uh, for now, the, and that should be a break, and uh, we'll be back after the break with some sound bites uh, from from the uh, from the meeting and discussion on the on the Belarusian incident and international implications. 
I recommend that you read uh, Vistagrid Insights new piece published on Political Europe, how to co-opt the conference on the future of Europe. Foreshadowing our event and series of conferences called Voices from Central and Eastern Europe. You're now going to listen to a recording of a meeting we held on the 25th of May in the afternoon after the EU Council meeting um, in a format of a typical Visegrad Inside video chat with diplomats, senior uh, journalists and editors, as well as think tank community from Central Europe and those across the Atlantic uh, and in the EU interested in Central European affairs. Let me now properly welcome uh, Serge Caritano, uh, an expert of the ISENSE. ISENSE is an international network for an action-oriented uh, uh, network, a think tank focused on security and providing excellent uh, weekly reporting um, regarding Belarus, Russia, the influence of Russian propaganda in the region of Central Europe. It's also one of uh, our close partners. Um, and Serge is connecting to us currently from the US. Um, and uh, Jörg Forbrick, Dr. Jörg Forbrick, uh, director of the uh, Central Europe program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, connecting from Berlin. Uh, York um, is overseeing programs on, on Central Europe, but um, very importantly, he, is, he has had and he has uh, a lot of experience uh, in supporting civil society and uh, independent, uh, independent initiatives in Belarus uh, for a number of years. Um, and you, you can see a lot, you can read a lot of his commentaries, including the recent one from Adilev yesterday on the on political regarding what needs to be done, what has to be done, and what in part um, uh, has been done by the European Union. But we'll we'll discuss all of that uh, if that is enough. Of course, today's meeting is is focused on the hijacking of the of the Ryanair uh, flight uh, over the territory of Belarus that uh, according to the best uh, knowledge that we have has been a fake report uh, fake report of a bomb um, and it was a trick uh, from the regime from the military junta that currently is in Minsk uh, taking uh, the, taking hostage a, a plane uh, Poland registered uh, you know uh, Irish company definitely a EU case and diverting it to Moscow, to, to Minsk, in order to capture uh, prominent journalists uh, of the new type of media, social media, Raman Pratasevich, currently residing in jail, uh, and that we, uh, that we are also monitoring um, his situation as closely as possible. However, not so much is known. Serge, uh, let me begin with you and ask you this question. Um, you know, we are, and this is, I think, important to, to, to remind everyone, we are in the 10th month of the protests or the resistance against 
uh, crooked elections, uh, unlawful uh, announcement of the of president of the former president Lukashenko that he is current that he won elections that has not been confirmed by anyone um, uh, on the ground really. And uh, what is what is the state of Belarusian society and and the condition of of the protests? Uh, that we have seen sparked uh, last uh, last summer. Uh, thank you, Wojciech. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with uh, you and distinguished guests and speakers. I would say that uh, the situation that we are observing now is very similar to what your country, Poland, experienced uh, in times of martial law. And Belarus has de facto uh, implemented martial law uh, in its territory uh, by illegal and illegitimate orders of the former president Alexander Lukashenko. So uh, Belarus has removed all opportunities for peaceful uh, protests and peaceful uh, uh, expression of political uh, views uh, by its citizens, although there are still uh, marches happening in various uh, areas of Minsk. There are so-called partisan marches, there are so-called partisan actions when people organize uh, protests in remote areas and they are forced to organize them in forests, in residential areas. Um, and uh, since recently, even photographs of people with uh, national symbols are considered as uh, illegal uh, protests and illegal rallies. So Belarus has de facto established a martial law, which automatically means that we should not expect uh, the same marches as we observed uh, since August 2020. It would be ridiculous to expect that the people would walk out into the uh, streets of uh, Minsk and other major cities, as well as small cities. It was it was a very important thing during the protests that people were protesting uh, despite of um, what their political affiliation was, what their economical status was, what, which class, uh, if we can say so, they belonged to, whether they were workers or intelligentsia, whether they lived in small villages or in uh, the capital of Belarus uh, in the city of Minsk. So I would say that the, the protest moods uh, did not go anywhere. They are now being underneath the ice, but uh, it's, it's obvious that Lukashenko remains in a, a surrounded castle as he probably imagined his rule for many years but now he he has his bureaucracy and he has the safe security around him there is no major support unlike it was in the previous 26 years although there were there was no sociology there were no fair elections there was still a consensus that lukashenko still had somewhat internal legitimacy since august 2020 he does not have neither internal nor external legitimacy in the eyes of both uh citizens of belarus and international community so i would say the protests continue but they uh, they moved into new forms. Uh, as you probably remember from the times of your youth or stories from your parents, uh, the Polish people were protesting against the communism in the 80s, but the forms of protests were different from street marches. At some point, uh, it just becomes useless and of no point to walk into the street and face a gunshot in the face as it happened to um, uh, certain individuals in Belarus. Belarus still remains a country where the repressions continue. There are still new uh, criminal processes against uh, civil activists, against journalists, against human rights lawyers. Uh, so just a few days before the, the, the hijacking of a plane in the skies uh, over Belarus, uh, the, the largest media website, Tutbai, was closed. Uh, so 
what we're seeing is, is a continuous stalemate of which we spoke about. Uh, we, I mean, ISENS. Uh, in November 2020. And uh, the, the further this situation continues, the more uh, uh, options for radicalizations it provides to both sides, unfortunately. Uh, although uh, the protesters and the pro-democratic community is still um, um, attached to idea of peaceful transformation, the regime is clearly not starting any uh, talks, not engaging into any dialogue, and they want to uh, behead the protest by brutal force. Uh, the people do not agree to this, and it would be stupid to expect that seven, eight million people who who spoke out against Lukashenko openly, again, in for the first time since Lukashenko became president in a, in a absolutely democratic elections in 1994. So for the first time in his career, he faced judgment from uh, what was his core electorate. And Belarus is definitely not a country as it was before. The, the protests are still continuing. The national movement still continues uh, to uh, push uh, the regime and increase the pressure through foreign partners and through its action inside the country. The only issue is that the people who fight against dictatorship with flowers on their hats are not in equal position uh, with the people who have guns and uh, Vladimir Putin's support. So but in order to... Yeah, I will finish it. It's just like 30 seconds. So in order to achieve certain uh, victories on the behalf of, of the pro-democratic movement and to push Lukashenko into talks, there has to be very decisive action from the side of European Union and foremost, the United States. Uh, thanks, Serge, for this account for where we are in the context of, you know, the, the, the whole process that we see as, started, as, as it started, uh, well, at least uh, the chapter of this process has started last year. And um, what you mentioned at the, your last remarks regarding the tools of the society or the civil society, I think this is worth uh, here to point out to the media, because usually we, I mean, that's where uh, the society um, can take a stance uh, against the power that's, the, you know, uh, speaking truth to the power. And, in in the case of uh, in the case of Belarus, that was a very peculiar case. I mean, media has been um, a battlefront, uh, and then there is a battlefront over the content, and that moved also online. Now, Roman uh, um, Roman um, Bradashevich, who is currently in custody of um, yeah, of Lukashenko. Uh, and the security, his uh, security apparatus, he's in arrest, he's in prison, he's facing, I mean, most likely he's been beaten up, what we've seen on the, on the video. And um, what's his condition? How much do you believe he's in danger? And very shortly, how much does it tell about the state of the media? And what are the media in Belarus? I mean, lots of questions. And I would really ask you also to, to be very brief on, on that. And we definitely will pick up. So just, just your highlights, if you may. Right. So the situation with media uh, was one of the worst uh, in the world. And it definitely was the worst in Europe long before uh, August 2020. Uh, there were literally no print media uh, published um, by non-governmental bodies. I mean, media that covered politics. So there were less than 10 newspapers for a very long time. There was no uh, television operating in official capacity in the territory of Belarus, uh, which was non-governmental. So the government and 
in particular, Alexander Lukashenko, as a sort of oligarch, ha- uh, has pri- uh, privatized all the television channels and all the radio stations. So the, the web uh, remained the last battlefield and the last area where there was still certain area of freedom for media. I would say that with uh, with the crackdown on food by, uh, Lukashenko's regime is telling that uh, uh, the websites will become the next area that they uh, plan to completely burn down. So I would assume that in the in the next few months, we will notice new cases of media being shut down. Just after August 2020, there's been 50 websites uh, blocked inside Belarus on political reasons. These would follow, and uh, the, the case of Tutbai is just the most outrageous case, but there are still, if, I would say, 20-25 majors that can follow uh, this destiny. As regards uh, your question about Raman, and uh, the video from custody, I would say uh, the video of Ramon telling things uh, should be treated as a video uh, of any person of foreign army captured and held uh, by captors. So he, he he's he, he's not in jail. He, uh, he he's not captured by a legitimate police force. Uh, so he he he's someone who's captured as a hostage and. Uh, there's no space for heroism when, when you're a hostage. You, you would say anything to save your life. So uh, I would treat his words with huge portion of criticism, and uh, I would prefer to wait until he's in safe location and he can tell how the situation really was, as we've noticed with uh, numerous people who were detained or uh, mm-hmm. um, taken hostage, whichever formulation you're using for uh, detention in Belarus. Uh, these people completely changed their position after they were able to get to safe places when they were able to escape from the country or when they simply went out of walls of detention center the story turned upside down so i I would treat his words with a lot of criticism and i I would assume that he's in immediate danger and uh, i think that that's pretty much all i can say about his status not just because what we've seen is outrageous and violates uh, international laws, but also because uh, not according to my personal opinion, but according to wide range of uh, international human rights groups, uh, the um, uh, judiciary system and the police system uh, in Belarus uh, has ceased to uh, exercise its uh, charter functions. So we, yep. if, if we could talk about certain extension of the rule of law that existed in Belarus before August 2020, now it's completely gone. So it, as some people rightly said, it's Somalia within Europe. Okay, uh, on this strong note, we, we will uh, pause here with uh, your responses, uh, Serge. We definitely will come back in a Q&A session when we will turn off the recording also. But you, you, uh, when I see maybe some journalists will, uh, so they might be asking you specific questions, uh, feel free to note if uh, for them if this is on the record or off the record. Now, uh, York, turning to you, and also on the notes that Serge uh, finished, uh, we we are, we are facing with an, an illegitimate regime. You you wrote of uh, terrorist uh, terrorist Lukashenko. He is terrorizing both uh, his own citizens, um, or citizens of Belarus, and uh, he is terrorizing Europe, as we we just seen with, uh, um, with the recent acts. How do you read um, 
how do you read this situation? And I think we need clarity on wording, uh, as I was puzzled how to um, how to give names, how to, how to attribute names to certain elements that otherwise would be called, you know, properly with authority of, of the legal system. But here we are a, a, a bit on uncharted territories. York, help us out here. How do you how do you see this situation? And also in the light of the response of the European Union. Well, thanks a lot, Wojtek, and my pleasure to be with uh, all of you here at uh, at Michigan Insight. Um, that's again, Wojtek, uh, several questions in one. So uh, let me try to sort of uh, go through them uh, uh, one by one. Um, the first thing I would say is that. Uh, and that's something that's bugged me since, uh, basically since uh, last year, since uh, the events in Belarus began uh, to unfold is uh, that the language that we often use uh, is uh, inappropriate. Um, for some reason, uh, we've, we still use um, a very soft language for uh, the events that have uh, have unfolded in the country. Uh, we're talking about human rights abuses. Now, in the face of what's happened, uh, and you're all familiar with uh, with the numbers and the extent uh, of the oppression, uh, repressions that we've seen for the last year, I find this is an utterly uh, inappropriate vocabulary. Uh, what's happened uh, is a war that the Lukashenko regime has launched against its own people. Uh, it's a state terrorism uh, that's played out domestically uh, uh, until last Sunday. Uh, it's a junta-style uh, uh, approach to uh, treating society, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I think that uh, in the language that we uh, that we have used, we basically fail to sort of portray the uh, the drama that's been uh, that's been playing out in uh, in Belarus. So um, when it comes to to simply language uh, and semantics, uh, I think we we need to escalate. Um, and that was part of the reason uh, why I also titled my own piece uh, on on what happened on Sunday. Alexander Lukashenko, international terrorist, uh, because I I think that we need to find stronger language to uh, uh, to transmit uh, what is happening in uh, in Belarus. Uh, I know that uh, many Belarusians have tried to do that uh, also from their end. Uh, some of you may remember that there were uh, um, that there were descriptions of what's happening in Belarus as genocide. There were references made to Auschwitz. I mean, this is obviously where it all gets very far. So we still also need to be careful with uh, um, uh, with that linguistic escalation, as it were. Uh, but I do think that we need to upgrade that because uh, um, more, more often than not, our language is way too dry and technical uh, and, uh, and even abstract. Uh, Obviously, uh, we also need to fill this with, uh, with substance, um, with, uh, we need to sort of abide by certain definitions, as it were. Uh, but I do think that uh, describing what the regime has done domestically and now also internationally as, uh, as terror uh, is fully appropriate. Um, uh, what has happened, I think, or what has changed uh, on Sunday is uh, that uh, uh, that terror has basically taken to an international stage. 
for the last year or so, it's played out purely inside of uh, uh, inside of Belarus, and it's had the effect that Serge uh, described. Uh, it basically pacified the situation uh, in a uh, in a brutal way, without doing away with the actual conflict that there is. I'm completely with Serge on the comparison also to Poland in the 1980s. Uh, this is a very uh, very comparable uh, situation. Uh, what that uh, description or that historical parallel also tells us is uh, a number of additional things. Uh, one is uh, that uh, a lot of the changes that we all hope will happen in Belarus at some stage uh, rests with the external sponsor. Um, the 1980s uh, and the Soviet Union, those parallels are very similar today with, uh, uh, with the role that Russia plays in the entire situation. Uh, I think what it also tells us is uh, that we will see uh, Belarus impoverish. Um, I think the, uh, the next challenge um, uh, for the entire country uh, will be an economic one. Um, uh, this country is uh, basically impoverishing uh, uh, materially. Uh, materially. Uh, I'm also somewhat hopeful that this may provide new impulses for the uh, for the protest movement. Uh, but I think uh, that's where we uh, 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 that's I think uh, the the historical sort of parallels that we should uh, uh, that we should use coupled with a much stronger language than uh, uh, than we have so far because we do need to uh, to transmit this uh, this drama this disaster this uh, this humanitarian also crisis uh, to audiences in the west for whom Belarus is a very far away place um, many were captured with the scenes of last summer the protests the uh, the very happy images that we uh, uh, that we saw uh, but in order to uh, to keep the attention on it, I think we uh, uh, we need to find better ways of transmitting uh, developments as they're going on. And last Sunday, in a very unfortunate way, especially for Raman Pratasevich, Alexander Lukashenko has helped us in, uh, in doing this. Um, we can discuss what the reasons are for, uh, for him to do that, but the effect is basically uh, that, this, uh, uh, that this terror has now arrived at, uh, at everybody's doorstep uh, inside of the European Union. And I'm frankly very happy that the response that we, uh, that we saw from the EU yesterday at the European Council uh, was as clear and as swift as it has been. Again, something we can discuss obviously in more detail. Thank you. Thank you, Jörg. Uh, also, a follow-up to this question. So there is not so much more to discuss on the response of the European Union that, you know, to this immediate effect um, of, of um, to this immediate act of, of, of state terrorism. However, um, the questions arises and it gets more complex if 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 we look now ahead to the what is now announced as 16th of june meeting between uh, biden and putin white house early on today uh, announced that it will stand and coordinate with the european union on the positions towards belarus don't you think that this also uh, complicates uh, the agenda of the meeting between putin and uh, and biden 
Thanks. Uh, perhaps before we do, uh, before I do that, let me do uh, spare a word on the EU sanctions, okay. um, because I do believe that they are worth looking at more closely. Uh, first of all, I think uh, there is a very clear set uh, of uh, of measures uh, that's been uh, that's been announced. At the same time, most of these still uh, still need to be filled with life. Um, it is not yet clear um, what the extension of the, the individual sanctions are to look like in extent, uh, especially in numbers. Uh, it is not clear what the, for me, most important or most interesting point in the, in the Council conclusions will look like. That's economic sanctions. Until now, these were basically off the table. If you talk to anybody uh, in the in the last couple of months uh, who was involved in the preparations of the fourth sanctions package, uh, it was pretty clear that economic sanctions were off the table. Uh, and one of the countries that sort of was was most fervent about the exclusion of that uh, of that option was my own Germany. Uh, that was a, a no go area basically. Uh, so I will be very very curious to see. Uh, how some of these uh, measures will actually look like in uh, in reality. I personally hope that especially the economic sanctions will uh, will parallel those that the U.S. will basically be reintroducing. Um, I'd also probably say that uh, some of the measures in that uh, package are a very double-sided sort. Uh, if you take the uh, exclusion of Belavia, basically, from the European airspace, uh, what this also does is that it removes one of the remaining channels for uh, Belarusian Democrats who are under pressure in their country uh, to leave the country. Uh, so not in all cases are these uh, straightforward and only positive news, but uh, there are some downsides to this. Uh, but here again, I think it remains to be seen how some of these measures will actually be uh, be implemented now that there is a relatively clear set of uh, of declarations by the uh, by the European Union. Now, when it comes to uh, uh, to the Putin Biden uh, meeting, I would probably be careful uh, to assume that this uh, meeting will absolutely take place. Uh, imagine the following. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, next two or three weeks, we find out about the identities of the four people who deboarded the plane in Minsk. One Russian citizen, uh, three Russian citizens, and one Belarusian citizen. It becomes clear from the identities that these are, uh, uh, these are Russian operatives. Uh, that were involved in uh, in the downing of the airliner uh, uh, on uh, on Sunday. Do we really think that uh, that President Biden easily meets with President Putin against the background of uh, of such an act? I think there is still something uh, something to happen in the days until then, and that meeting may well not take place against this background. These were Jörg Farbrig, Serge Karetanau, Wojciech Przybylski and Marysia Ciupka. Thanks for listening.